you know, sometimes you have an idea of what something's like in your head. You plan to write an intro about it. You go over your audio. Then you learn that you and your guest, Andy of the Big O Archive, Engine Beer on Twitter, barely discuss it. Here I was, ready to organize my thoughts about an important shared cultural artifact. The WOW Cool Robot meme. If you're unfamiliar, go to your search engine of choice, type WOW Cool Robot, and your first result should be something like this. An MS Paint RX-78G Gundam, that's the original one, shooting the phrase, War is bad, over the head of an audience member who remarks, WOW Cool Robot. The idea being that this straw man audience member is missing an obvious point for admiring something shallow or surface level. Now I could cite the you know your meme website or what have you, but my memory of this meme is popping up, oh, around 2015 or 16 and chuckling at the simple way it depicts multiple readings or lenses. It probably entered my lexicon as shorthand for shallow reads at the time and I may even still use it. Now at this point, the meme has become something of an albatross when it comes to critical discourse. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but a meme whose original reading was people tend to miss straightforward theming or metaphors and narrative in lieu of aesthetic appears to have misunderstood the material it was referencing. Gundam is about many things, but war is bad is not really one of them. You can say it was trying to use shorthand to communicate, but it still kind of misses the mark in a way that can't really be ignored. Not to mention the not-so-insignificant point that one of the main things mecha designers and writers definitively want people to take away is probably, wow, cool robot. Now, I should note, I have memory of the creator of this meme regretting the way it has kind of been used and misused, and that seems to be the way of most memes. So, this is in no way meant to be some kind of takedown of, of the meme or its original intention. I, I still use it. Now, what does this have to do with part two of the Demon Seed conversation with Andy? Uh... <laughs> Not much, it turns out, but that's because Andy and I are just too busy getting deep into the conversation around the events of Demon Seed. If you have any thoughts about this conversation, or the conversation with Oliver and Laura we talk about, or anything else that ends up being discussed, not to mention ideas for future shows or guests, follow us and tweet at MechanationsPod on Twitter, or send us an email at MechanationsPod at gmail.com. Enjoy! Um, I picked this one, par- partially because of the holidays, um, but partially because we, we had a bunch of fun conversations about it after the fact. Uh, one of my favorite parts about covering the Big O for Mechanations, honestly, was uh, t- talking about stuff I wanted to ask you about later. <laughs> <laughs> um, pretty consistently, we would come across a thing, and I would wonder out loud, I wonder if this is a thing that Andy would know. Um, and Demon Seed, uh, one of the things that I loved about covering uh, the Big O especially was how effectively it accomplished the goal of uh, uh, setting up a, a stage on which multiple kinds of stories can play out. And I think Demon Seed is one of the more... There are two examples that I think are fantastic in season one. Um, the first one is the movie episode about um, Dastin. Uh, I know PMC was not a big fan of that episode, but I love that episode. Uh, I love how um, vague it is, and I love how kind of dreamlike that episode is. Do you you know which one I'm talking about, right? Yeah, so that's uh, I want to say that's episode eleven, Winter Night Phantom, or yeah. is that episode ten? 
Winter Night Phantom is the episode. Um, I think 11 is Demon Seed, but either way, Winter Night Phantom and Demon Seed, I think, are perfect sort of encapsulations of, like, you know, to invoke Star Trek again uh, of a sort of, like, a bottle episode where they tell a, a smaller-scale story on the stage that they've set already in previous episodes. Uh, sure. Be- and and then also the, the story that they are able to tell in these encapsulated kind of stages are also are my typical favorites, which are absolute drenching ex- existential anguish yes <laughs> <laughs> well so right away you know i'm, I'm gonna I, i'm gonna go through this uh in a linear fashion we you know obviously we get our intro can i i have you know while i've got you can i ask you how you feel about the the updated intro when when they you know when they had to put it on uh the, that um that one network and they needed to make a new intro how do you feel about it so as a piece in and of itself, it's fine. You know, it's it's got a it's got a nice beat. You know, it's got some nice uh, kind of a '50s sounding guitar to it. It's fine. Yeah. But, and this is going back to some of those uh, interviews um, from Sato and Katayama. They specifically formulated just the sound and the visuals of the first intro to specifically garner a reaction and an appreciation for a time period mm-hmm. and the energy expressed from that time period with the original opening. So it's got the Ultra 7, you know, lava and silhouettes. It had it they chose uh legally or otherwise they chose <laughs> Queen's Flash uh, to kind of base the beat and melody of the Big O theme song off of. And, of course, the newspaper clippings, etc. So it, as as a intro to the Big O, I feel like that one's kind of a failure, the new one that they had to make for all the Blu-rays in 2007 and when it re-aired. Because it, it just kind of... It doesn't encapsulate the artistic intent. And I, I would argue the very pointed and delicate artistic intent of the original op yeah no i completely agree i i I found myself i'm glad to hear you have kind of uh intellectualized the the stuff that i i kind of intuited about the the new intro which is like uh, you know i i don't like this as much it just doesn't i don't i don't feel like it's communicating the right right feel like it's fine as an intro goes i completely agree with you like it, it it accomplishes the the task of you know, being in a, a thing that plays before the actual story starts. But like, as far as putting you in the in the mood, so to speak, you you are completely right that the original really accomplished that perfectly. You know, yeah. legally or otherwise, as you put it. <laughs> I think that I think Sato actually said that explicitly. It's like it's about the mood. It's about putting these older fans we also wrote this show for, and bringing them an expectation of what big o is simply by the theme song alone so um moving i 100 agree with you to, but but to to move into the episode proper we're, we're greeted right away with something that western audiences will right away feel comfortable with in a way that um i think that you know will be hard to even like critically recognize at first which is the the heaven's day decorations right which will you know you know american and you know british audiences and others would recognize as christmas stuff right um and and something i wanted to tackle right away just so we can you know it'll be context we can use for the rest of the conversation is is the differences between 
how uh you know uh, the the quote-unquote western appreciation of christmas versus what christmas is in japan right I, i feel like that's worth talking about when we're talking about the rest of this episode because it's while it's not unheard of obviously for for christmas stories to be romantic capital r romantic in in you know obviously we have a whole like christmas canon like a <laughs> what a wonderful life kind of almost one character's hinges on the fact that oh if you don't exist she becomes an old maid you know that that sort of thing does exist in our culture but in in japan it's explicitly like it's like a valentine's day sort of thing do you think that's that's a fair description i would think so i really only my my only kind of exposures to japanese christmas come from like super sentai because they always have a christmas episode right and um and also the memes where they have that one KFC uh statue dressed up as Santa each year. <laughs> but um uh I would agree cuz there is like there is gift giving of course, but there also is the kind of gift giving to a, an admirer or a loved one. Right. Uh, cuz even Valentine's Day is slightly different in Japan as well. I think there well, there's there um there's White Day that kind of is a follow-up to valentine's day if i'm remembering that correctly right and so that that may have similar energy for how it's slightly different in japan but there there is a bill it's not really just like gift giving to your family and you know uh giving gifts to your children there is the extra kind of connotation of there is a gift uh for a loved one right and that is expressed here as well that's the main thing i wanted to to highlight and the reason why i brought it up is because in in the context of this episode in particular the 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 uh, dynamic between uh, it's not even necessarily the focus because our focus is on the, the sort of Bob Cratchit of the episode, but the the dynamic between Roger and Dorothy is on full display here, and the and the lens we're going to be viewing it through is that the you know the drama of that romantic lens of of you know will they exchange gifts and you know in the context of Christmas that does that mean you know. Does that that mean they're they're they they like like each other? You know that that <laughs> that sort of thing is is on is you know one of the tensions that runs through this episode, and and part of the reasons why I think it's it's really good is is that like it effortlessly establishes that in throughout the episode, so that it can be in the background, you know. Oh um, right, and there's also uh, different perspectives from each of the characters as well. Like I was just reviewing the episode this morning, and you know. From Dorothy's perspective, when she's speaking to other people, it does seem like a a like-like kind of scenario where she's like, you know, um, can I be loved? Why does uh, Oliver love Laura, etc.? But then you kind of see at the end, which kind of mirrors, um, what was it, Bet Comes Back, which is episode nine. Uh, the subtitles read, you know, uh, Dorothy's like, I want to give a present to someone I appreciate. And so even she, I want to say she's being coy because that's not the right word, but even she's just kind of like, I need to play my hand uh, in a, you know, as subtly as I can. And over time, and I can't just throw it on Roger because maybe even she's not entirely sure. So, well, no, it, that, and what you're speaking to, the, the um, uh, dissonance there, the drama there is, is what this episode is, is expertly playing with. Um, and you know the the word you used to to talk about Dorothy at the end there, coy. I think that's part of what is you know nowadays this the the dynamic that she is dealing with has kind of been boiled down to a, an archetypal sort of like Sundara sort of thing is what people might refer to it now. 
Um, and what I like about well, those Dorian... people are really wrong then, but I, <laughs> they probably would come to that. They would also say like I don't know. Zeta's well, good. I'm like, <clears throat> oh, oh my goodness, Andy. Oh my goodness. You, can, you can cut that out. You can cut that out. No, no, no it's fine. It just lighted my podcast on fire. <laughs> no, it's funny. Um, but no, the the reason I bring that up though is because when when you invoke those words, it's boiling down something complicated like a character into something pithy that you can use to describe them simply. And what I like about Dorothy is that they're doing something that that feels kind of rote, that feels kind of trite, but the way that that she uh, interacts with Roger, it, it it walks that fine line really expertly. I think. I think it's very clear what she wants and believes in the text, but I, the way that she acts obfuscates it in a way that it makes it fun to watch along with. Does that make sense? I oh, think yeah. it's well constructed. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> Like uh, uh, in this episode, there's also when um, uh, when Roger and Dorothy are at the table with Norman, and Norman's describing what Heaven's Day is. You know, Dorothy's just asking very logical questions, like you know, does everybody celebrate this? You know, what is Heaven's Day about? Will you, Roger, be giving a present to someone? And then you know, th- those are very kind of data-like questions, very logical, just trying to understand right. the event as it is. But then when Roger's like, why would I ever give a present to anybody? You know, not attacking Dorothy, but attacking the the event. It's like, it's a day when Paradigm City was founded. Why would I, someone who has forsaken Paradigm, celebrate something like that? Right. And then Dorothy just gets up and says goodnight. And it's like, but why? Why would she feel attacked by this? She was only asking very logical questions, trying to understand the situation. So at that moment, it's like, we start to realize that situation means more to her. Right. And that she can also be upset by things. She may not wear that on her sleeve, and she may not be upset by a lot of different things, as more emotive characters are. But you can see that there are tinkerings behind the scene of her facade. That there's you know this very deep character going on, even behind just cold, placid eyes. So something I think in in is is key to enjoying the Big O, especially if you're trying to watch it like sequentially if you have it in a collection and you're just watching one episode after another i i think something that that helped me when i watched it was to try not to sometimes roger's development will go will trace from episode to episode and sometimes it won't and and i and i encourage people who are watching along to not get too like torn up about it because that's not necessarily the structure that they were trying to create with the show there are some elements that that connect from episode to episode and some that don't and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, again, that wasn't a critique as much as setting up for what I'm about to talk about here. There's a bit in this episode where in the department store, uh, Roger invites Dorothy onto the elevator. It's a pretty crowded elevator. And obviously we've, we've established previously that Dorothy weighs more than a, a girl her age and size would weigh because she's a robot and she's made of plastic and metal and stuff. She weighs 286.6 pounds. Okay, well, she's not even that heavy, whatever, but anyway. <laughs> she, she's heavy for her, for her frame, for sure, but anyway. Um, the, the, you know, in, the, in this moment, what, what we're establishing here, there are two things that we learn. There's, one is that, that Roger is a little callous, he's a little thoughtless, um, but the reason, the second thing we, we learned is the reason he was callous and thoughtless was, is because he takes her humanity for granted. It, is, is that 
you know, there's a, a moment where he, he doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, consider how this would be offensive to her, right? And, and, it's, and it's because he kind of, on one hand, he takes her humanity for granted, but on the other, there, you know, he does kind of, and I wonder how much of this is like a defensive reaction. This is, you know, sometimes when, uh, sometimes when you get called out or when you're wrong, and you kind of know you're wrong, your impulse is to, like, be more wrong sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and like, I, I'm not defending Roger or even saying that this is a, a wrong thing to do, but I almost wonder if this conversation where he is he is taking for, well, I know, aren't you a robot? Like, how, why would you care if you, you know, are perceived to weigh more than a normal girl your size? Like, why is that something that bothers you? Um, I wonder if him doubling down here or not necessarily doubling down, because he might just be clueless. Roger can be kind of clueless about this stuff. I, I feel like something that they try to establish is that um, his observational skills as a negotiator are kind of, like, focused outward in a way that he he kind of either has a hard time or refuses to focus inner inside. I, f- I feel like the closest we get to that is, um, in season one anyway, is the uh, the... Gosh, the uh, the labyrinth episode when he descends down and uh, is is attacked by fear and has visions of his mother. Do you do you feel like that's a fair characterization of Roger, or do you think that that I'm 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 enigmaticing it and, and I'm reading too much? <laughs> I mean, I feel like if there's any show that you can get away with reading too much into, it's Big O, for better or for worse. Right. Um, Roger is definitely, I would say, a professional first. I think a good example, coming back to also what you were saying with the, the Labyrinth, that was uh, Underground Terror. That's episode three. Right. Um, no, that's episode four, because episode three is Electric City. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I feel like this is also mirrored very well at that same dinner table scene where, um, you know, Roger is just saying stuff. And he's saying stuff that could be, you know, kind of callous, depending on from what perspective you're receiving his comments from. And, you know, he says all this stuff. Uh, why would I do this? Why would I do that? You know, Dorothy, I'm not I'm not taking into consideration your point of view from this. And she gets up and leaves the table and Roger's just surprised. Right. And he turns to Norman. It's like, that's odd. Norman, could I have said something wrong? He's just completely oblivious to the fact that he could have said something wrong right. or that his intent would ever be misconstrued. And then, of course... Then you get the best line in pretty much the whole season where Norman's like, no, no, sir, just just the usual. Just the usual wrong things you always say. <laughs> I was about to say was this must have been the moment where Norman's like, I gotta I have to intervene. I've gotta fix this. <laughs> like this is this is not clearly Roger is not picking up on some pretty straightforward signals. Or what even, you know, if you were if if you perceive it this way, what Norman sees as pretty straightforward signals from Dorothy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um uh, but um, from after that t- uh, that uh, table scene, I believe that is when we get to meet our uh, our other two characters for this episode, and Laura and Oliver. Oliver, who I've previously referred to as Bob Cratchit, um, th- that's more in my my uh, Christmas Carol paradigm, which doesn't you know not doesn't quite fit this episode per se. But I, I do think it's something that that is on the sort of like wavelength of this episode, in particular because it's. It's a holiday-themed episode about class issues and, you know. Well, sure. You've got someone who understands the human condition because they're exposed to it every single day. 
And then you have someone who's like Roger is like, you know, a young aspiring artist should never take the easy way out, even if he's dirt poor. You know, and I'm just going to go buy a, a $1,500 uh, jacket in 1959 money, which I think was like $13,000 today. Oh, right. I didn't even and consider that. Yeah. And so there is definitely, um, well, not on the nose, there is a, a Bob Cratchit and a, um, what's his nuts? Uh, the bad guy in Scrooge? A Christmas Story. Yeah. Scrooge, thank you. Yeah, there definitely is kind of a, uh, a dynamic there, I would say. So something that Big O is good, you know, I don't, I know I'm preaching to the choir here when I'm like, hey, you know what's good about Big O? But, but here's another <laughs> one. Um, the first time I watched through this for Mechanations, uh, I had completely missed that. Um, uh, I'm about to call him Bob Cratchit again. Oliver, Oliver is is faking eating right now. He he is he is going through the motions of of eating food, um, like like clinking his silverware against the plate and stuff like that. In order to to trick Laura into thinking that he is also eating food with her, and and you know like obviously this is going to be something that that comes into play for when Laura has her conversation with with um with Dorothy later, but right away we're we're given a picture of a dude right who is self sacrificing but but maybe dishonest, and and I what I think is interesting about this episode in particular is the sort of like the ethical complexity of of like giving us this dude who in a normal narrative would be like the purest dude of all time who who right. like basically unimpeachable nothing wrong with this dude it's actually a crime that he's down on this like this much and it and it still is right we're still supposed to be sympathetic to him but i think it's it's really interesting to give him this this what i would call like a noble sort of character trait here so that later it can be critiqued like it's such a bold sort of thing that doesn't necessarily mm. happen in your your average show, and I I just appreciated it a lot. Do you know, is there is there any kind of notes on on these two on Oliver or Laura that that kind of informs them, or is it really kind of more of a broad strokes holiday story sort of situation? To me, it kind of feels more broad stroke. I'm I'm not th- mm. I'm not. Nobody who is blind or necessarily disabled really comes to mind for classic Christmas stories. Um, I mean, you know, people being, you know, poor, I guess, to use a more uh, unfriendly term. Right. Uh, uh, economically disadvantaged. Sure. Uh, that, that's kind of a, a normal thing for some Christmas stories. I mean, even going back to the Rankin and Bass, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. You know, Santa Claus started, uh, St. Nicholas started up as a, uh, as a poor orphan. Right. So. Yeah, no, even in, uh, to invoke hmm. more Rankin Bass, uh, you know, the, the Jack Frost, I remember a, a, a story point of Jack Frost is that like, uh, the, they started to use ice for money because the, ah, the, yes. The, the, like, man, it, those Rankin Bass specials are wild. <laughs> um, cause like the, the master of town or whatever just kept all the money. So the townsfolk started to freeze. I don't know. Either way. <laughs> um, the, the thing that I think is interesting about these two is the, the sort of, uh, way that the show highlights them it's almost kind of the 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 big o starring oliver for, for an episode and i and i appreciate that um the the thing that i i think uh you know you invoked this moment that steven hero really didn't enjoy <laughs> steven hero was not super fond of roger smith throughout 
which is that when uh, 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 Oliver tries to sell, I'm sorry to skip ahead a little bit here, no, but but we were talking about it. Oliver tries to sell uh, Roger Smith his um his, the, the little uh, egg, the 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 titular demon seed, I imagine. Uh, uh, and Roger says that thing where he's like, you know, uh, a true artist doesn't take shortcuts. And I, I, I'm just curious, and this isn't like a, this is not a trap or something or a pop quiz where I'm like, ah, Andy, you, you answered poorly. I'm just curious. (laughs) What do you think? Do you think we're supposed to like agree with Roger in that moment? Or do you think this, that's kind of a bah humbug from him? That's a good question. Cause So I've seen the show 10 times. And so probably like the third and fourth watches, I probably would have agreed more with Roger because Paradigm City might be, you know, a really crappy place, but it does seem like, you know, Roger was able to achieve what he did and other people were able to achieve what they did and he didn't necessarily take any shortcuts. So there's going to be a path you know, there's going to be a rags to riches path for anybody who could put their mind to it. But now on my ninth and 10th watches, I probably actually would agree that uh, that was kind of a negative character trait for Roger. Because we learned later on in uh, season two that Roger was an orphan and that he was adopted by, as he calls it, I think he says an eclectic family. Huh? No, he uses a different word. Um, but he gets adopted by a very rich family. And when I, we don't, we never know what happens to his parents. We don't even know if that's actually his memories, but he has money. He didn't earn any of his money. Right. Uh, he, you know, he charges enough for his negotiation fees, unless you're reading the manga when sometimes he does it pro bono. But uh, yeah, so for Roger to be like, no one ever takes the easy way out. No one ever takes shortcuts. Look at me. I'm Roger Smith, a negotiator with, a huge car and a huge house. And I was like, but you took the shortcut out. So I, I would agree that from, from that perspective, like it might be a little bit noble as Roger. And like the very next scene where Roger's kind of describing it, you know, it's like Roger's uh, rule number one, number two. It's like, I feel like there is a little bit of poetic nobility to what he's saying It's like, maybe it's more like, I wish more people would put in the hard work that, you know, I've seen people do so that they could achieve greatness honestly. But then you look at the real world that he's not necessarily exposed to and you see that's not actually feasible. Right. And that's also comes to tie back into why Oliver has to lie. You know, if it was a perfect Christmas story, like you're saying, it'd be it would be a sin in and of itself that someone so pure would be down on his luck. Right. But uh, but someone like Oliver, you know, he can't be in this in this more real world of paradigm. You can't just be the good guy and ever expect to come out on top. Right. Right. No, I I, I think the, the more the thing that's interesting to me about that moment is that it, it feels like they intentionally put it in for you to have like this is such a corny thing to say about about storytelling in general but they i feel like they wanted you to put in a moment where the audience can take what they wanted from Roger there like whether you're a pro Roger guy and you're like well you know Roger is is trying to like you said he's trying to encourage good traits out of Oliver or if you're like an anti Roger guy and you remember that he got adopted and you're like man 
whatever, Roger. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because I think for me, and like, I don't want to, spoilers for people who haven't watched through season two of The Big O. You can skip ahead. I'm going to go ahead and say like 30 seconds. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I think the idea that there is a role for Oliver specifically that that he is like performing and that Roger is like encouraging that role here is kind of an interesting idea. Do you do you see what I'm saying kind of? I do. Yeah. yeah. Um but you know that's I don't I, I, I hesitate to to really spend too much mental energy on that just because I'm not not that this matters, but I'm I'm not positive that's the sort of thing they would have had in mind when they were creating season one you know what i mean no, i i agree I, I i think that's that could be proven retroactively but during the writing of the episode i i don't feel like that's substantiated by the text but it is an interesting in, uh, you know consideration right right no I, I to be honest like that and i i danced around it throughout our machinations coverage of the big o like that to me is what, part of what made season one so interesting was that that lens but in any case uh, I wanted to highlight something I really like about the Big O, particularly with Roger Smith. Um, and if you listen to our Mechanations coverage, audience members, uh, I, I ended up picking Roger Smith as my, my favorite character through, for, for the Big O, largely because of how much I was surprised that of the legitimate effort they made to make him like personable and relatable in a way that I, I thought was going to be like, I was going to be immune to. I, I thought I was going to be like, man, whatever. But there are so many times where, like, so in Electric City, when he goes to meet Secret Agent Old Man, um, he, he like, spends the night with Secret Agent Old Man, and he makes him uh, some uh, scrambled eggs that we saw Norman making earlier. And I was, I was really, like, the, the touch of showing that, like, Roger is not so pampered that he can't make himself some breakfast and he can't do some yard work. And, and even here, you know, this is why I bring this up, when, when he's doing something that is, like, pretty, like, military-coded, right? It's, it's maybe, like, the most shorthand, like, hard work thing you can think of, which is, like, peeling potatoes. Like, he's, he's not above sitting down and, and just fucking doing it with, with Norman here and peeling those potatoes. That, that sort of yeah. thing, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I apologize for preaching to the choir, Andy. <laughs> um, but that sort of thing, I, I think, is, is something that, that you can take for granted in your storytelling when it comes to character traits and, and establishing your characters. You know, I don't want to turn this into the Gundam Wing sniping hour just because that's what we're covering right now. But um, Gundam Wing has a real problem with establishing character traits like this. It really never does this kind of work where you can show something about implicit about a character without just stating it. Like, Roger is the sort of dude who is not above getting his hands dirty. Like, he, he is, he definitely wants to present in just a, such a way, but, like, he, he will also do the hard work. And I, I think that's cool. Yeah, he'll meet you at the door at, you know, 2 or 3 a.m. in his slippers and his uh, bathrobe and sit by the fireplace with you and have a, a, a drink of spirits. Yeah, he'll, it's, you know? he's, it's definitely, I think they, they did a good job of understanding that a dude with this kind of wealth could be too separate from a normal person to be relatable as a story. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's something that I, I, you know, I, I feel like it's difficult to avoid the conversation of Batman. Obviously Batman was an influence on, on the big O. Um, but I feel like a really tired 
uh, uh, critique of Batman is is the one of like why wouldn't Batman use his his fortune in order to address you know the the crime issues of Gotham, and and the reason why it bothers me is not because it's it's kind of like a, a tired critique. It, it's because of the the idea that like people who write for Batman wouldn't have thought of that, <laughs> you know, like that that's right. that's not one of the first things that would have occurred to people, and like. And, you know, if you read Batman books, like, often he is. Like, often there'll there'll be a line or there'll be even a scene or something to that effect where it's clear that there's some kind of, of money that's being funneled into useful efforts towards Gotham's, like, you know, issues. But, like, that's not really what a, you know, to, to return to our conversation about uh, uh, Wow Cool Robot not actually being a bad thing, like, uh, you, you don't really pick up i would read a batman story about how you know his his use of financials and stuff like that that's like a series of excel spreadsheets or whatever but <laughs> but like i i am not the typical batman audience right and so like the, to me the i don't need that that level of like oh how do you make batman relatable batman's relatable on different levels so this is another way this to return to Roger Smith and this potato peeling scene. This is another way that the Big O does its its you know its storytelling you know elegantly. This sort of thing of just like meeting you at 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 in the early morning in his robe, like you described, is one of the things that makes this show fun to watch. Um, right. I didn't catch. I have a, a confession. I didn't catch that this is Norman doing like a like a grift on Roger. <laughs> like a like a like a, a um uh, uh uh like a sitcom sort of goof on Roger. Uh <laughs> that's something that PMC had to point out to me. Um from the the extra Norman stuff uh that that you know it, the the stuff that we learned from him in I believe the manga uh is that the case? Specifically what? For Norman like for his background and and what informs him as a character. We learn more about him in the manga, right? Correct. Yes. So, do you know uh, if if his fondness for Roger has it, does it extend beyond like a like a sort of duty sort of situation? Did he know the people who who Roger who adopted Roger, or is it not really? Is it more just like a archetypal loyal butler sort of situation? If we're just going from season one, I think if we're just going by the manga, it really kind of is. You can see there is a warmth there. Like, it's not just strictly business. Like, for episode one, it feels like it's strictly business. But you, you do get some sense and some scenes where it is kind of more like, you know, you know, Norman's not afraid to offer friendly pieces of advice because you know Roger will respect that advice. Um, you know, even at the end of the episode when Roger's upset, you know, that Norman lied to him about Dorothy's birthday... You know, he just kind of like, whatever. And then Norman's also just like, you know, playing silly at the end. Like, what? What do you mean? I never said that. <laughs> and so there, I, there is definitely something beyond professionalism coming from those two points of view. But we also, to answer your question by not answering it, we do learn in season two uh, where their relationship begins. And I'll leave that to whomever uh, decides to watch uh, episode 14, Roger the Wanderer and see how that plays out. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. 
Um, that's the, so one of the things that uh, I wanted to, to get to, and we'll get to it at the end there was, um, how you feel like, uh, the conversation, the drive home when <laughs> Roger <laughs> has to talk to Norman afterwards, how that goes, but you know, <laughs> um, well, before we switch topics, there's one thing I wanted to bring up kind of like the, to kind of express more about the, uh, the character traits that you were talking about. Sure. Um, Previously, you know, we we kind of spoke about how uh, Oliver. It's it's nice to see him be portrayed as something other than pure, and that that makes his character dynamics and his involvement with the narrative more dynamic. Right. I feel like that's the same way for Roger too, because he's not just this through and through Scrooge. You know, there's not just wholly negative things about him. Right. He does. He may not get it. Because, you know, the point of this episode, we, you have the the human condition from Roger's point of view who has everything, yet in some cases has nothing. And then you have the human condition as from Oliver's point of view who has nothing, but in some cases has everything. Right. And so you, you have, you kind of blend some of their characteristics together and not make them such staunch archetypes by having Oliver lie. Uh, and you also have uh, Roger having a little bit uh, some humility and some insight into a little bit harder work, you know, peeling potatoes. That's, that's a military thing, but that's also kind of like a punishment thing. It's also a servant thing, right. but he's, but he's not afraid to, even if on, even from his ivory tower, he's not afraid to kind of just sit down with his friend and Butler, Norman Berg, roll up his sleeves and peel potatoes. And so that, that does bring a certain warmth and, um, uh, extra layers to their characters, not to just treat them as archetypes, but to present them as people. No, and I think that's a really good point, especially to, to bring up how both of their their roles as the, the sort of uh, main characters of this story uh, link them that way as well. So that, that sort of relationship and the way that they're sort of like uh, not exactly a pure demonstration of their their characters either way is is actually it, it does make the narrative better right like I completely agree with you that Roger and the way that he bends and Oliver and the way that he bends is is like a purposeful thing that the story is doing um, mm-hmm. the um the the next bit I mean there the next bit we see is uh the 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 sort of Roger's lot in life not Roger excuse me Oliver's lot in life. <laughs> Where he is a um, a garbage man uh, for Paradigm City, and it seems like Paradigm is not is not really paying the its infrastructure super well. Um, I mean, you know, it, it feels like the, in this case, there's not a whole lot to dig into as far as like the the yeah uh, uh, the point is that that uh, Oliver is down on his luck that he is doing work like he is he does have like a job job, but it's not a job job that's going to be able to provide for him and Laura. And that's when he runs into uh, Santa. I called him Coca-Cola Santa. Uh, <laughs> but um, I, I thought about it more, and I was like, well, I guess Coca-Cola Santa is just regular Santa, to be honest. Cause, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, But, you know, uh, the, the point remains that this is kind of like off-brand Santa. It's not what you'd want. Um, uh, and he, this, this off-brand Santa hands Oliver his, the, the MacGuffin for the episode, the, the titular demon seed. What I like about this guy, you brought up earlier the sort of differences in approach between the subs and the dub, right? Um, mm. 
and and I think that a lot of the time in the big O, you're not going to run into too many scenarios where the the dub the adaptation completely misunderstands the intention of of the writing. That very rarely happens, I would say. Um, and you know, the reason I bring that up is because that can happen with dubs because translating is hard, adapting works is hard, and and sometimes you when you're doing it quickly or for whatever other reason, you can get mistakes and. Sometimes it can be fun to crack open the differences in, in line. So, for example, uh, Coca-Cola Santa Claus has a line when he's leaving Oliver about the the city suffocating, right? Or everyone will suffocate in the city. Um, and it's the sort of thing, when you when you hear it the first time, it's the sort of thing you kind of come to expect from a, a sort of, like, someone who is out of their mind, so to speak. That, that they're, you know, a, a villainous sort of madman. You know, does, you, you know what I'm saying, right? Sure, yeah. Um, but when you watch it again, uh, and I forget, the dub has a slightly different wording of it. In the dub, it definitely feels more like cackling madman sort of thing. But in this, the, 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 the uh, Japanese language version, it seems like the implication is one that is followed up on later with the 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 Tenenbaum, right? The the giant Christmas tree. The idea that like if they're all stuck in the domes, if they're if they're, you know, uh their horizon doesn't extend beyond paradigm, that they will suffocate. I, I love that that even in the like throes of his madness, this this dude I love how like on brand all the mad scientists that live in in uh uh <laughs> you know the big O are. I really love how they've they've stuck to like their thing. <laughs> that's I, I respect that as far as like a a man of science goes um well, that and i guess to speak a little bit deeper when you when you pull out one memory of the past where otherwise you are defined by absolutely nothing i could see that being like the emo kid in middle school where it's like i'm going to define myself by this entire thing oh that's a really good point no 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 because yeah, i because I, I, I think they were talking about the uh the scientist uh when uh Dan brings him up later. He's like, yeah, he's he's this scientist who advocated for a nature restoration, and he had just gotten back that single memory. And so, you know, like the opening to the manga too, there's a heist where someone's willing to pay millions and millions of dollars for uh, like their specific memories that for some reasons on like a disc. But and so the if a whole life of memories is worth you know that much amount of money. Just imagine how, but how still valuable even just one defining attribute could be for someone who, especially an elderly person like Coca Cola Santa, who has literally nothing. Right. No, it's and it's actually it's it's putting a, a, a you know uh, uh, it's putting a finger on the the main sort of thing that that the big O likes to deal with, which is the question of like what. How, how do you choose to act in a world where you don't have a past anymore? Like, who are you anymore when you don't have your past? And, and mm -hmm. the Big O has lots of really fun answers to that, those questions. Like, how do you deal with that reality? And, and here, you know, this, that, that question of that, that really makes these, the, you know, uh, mad scientists way more interesting to me. I never considered <laughs> that angle of like, how do you, how do you handle, this is the thing you are, right? And I mean, you know, I, 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 that would turn you into Coca-Cola's Santa Claus or uh, Eugene Grant from a couple episodes ago. Um, Ooh, I think I think you drink. I think Eugene was thirty-six. Oh, but uh, he he had the advantage of being uh, 
silent whispers spoken to by a Megaduce that was sleeping That's underneath right. his encampment. And so he was slowly going insane just from like real Lovecraft shit. Right. But, uh, but then you have stuff like uh, Miguel Soldano. I think he's in his 60s. You know, he was going crazy just like, you know, you know, Dorothy, you are my daughter, but you're not actually my daughter. This is my real daughter. But, 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 and then uh, Timothy Wainwright, I think was uh, in his late 60s as well. Um, Mr. Gisang, I think is 50s or 60s. Right. So. It's, it, it's really that, that question of like, how do you, what do you, what do you uh, like aspire to? How do you move forward? And, and like. It's showing how when you have like, oh, I had this one piece that I remember from that the before time and I'm going to hyper fixate on that. It makes a lot of the character actions more explicit in a way that is is cool. What a cool show the big O is. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it's it's one of those things that um, it reminds me of. Uh, uh, there is a conversation that I had uh, the the last time I had watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, because there was a there was a discussion about the have you you've seen Who Framed Roger Rabbit right? Yes, I have. Um, so there is there is a discussion about the identity behind the the uh, spoilers for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, the cartoon who was pretending to be Judge Doom, and you know I was I was arguing for like I mean it doesn't it doesn't matter right like the the point is that the, the whoever it was was a like some kind of weird you know cartoon that inflicted harm on tunes and people right like that that at that point it doesn't matter who specifically it was and the, the thing that this person was trying to bring up is is the idea that we could learn something about you know the cartoon by thinking about the the person who would draw that and the example that they were giving, bringing up was jessica rabbit right like you you feel like you know everything about the person who drew jessica rabbit <laughs> right right um and and <laughs> I, and I get that sort of and when you bring up Miguel Soldano, for example, like you can I, I, I mean this in the best possible way. Rod, uh, Dorothy is kind of the reverse version of that, right? Where like you you kind of understand everything about Soldano's story by by looking at Dorothy and seeing what he chooses to do with Dorothy. Uh, and, and that kind of like fixation, and, and like how we choose to comport ourselves when when we don't have those those like grounding elements of, of our memories like the, the big O works in that a lot and in even Demon Seed which isn't as much about that stuff is doing fun cool stuff with those elements. Um, but uh, uh, getting us back on track, uh, this is the. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I've, I've a couple times. No, that I mean that's that's the greatest part about Big O is that you know even if Sato's like I just want any viewer who picks up Big O to pick up any episode, turn it off and feel satisfied with a whole complete narrative, and basically a plot that just resets itself each episode. Despite that fact being mostly true, you still get to tie all thirteen of these first episodes all together and all these different knots right and you know open up so many different layers and details so no it's, it's good that even now you know that's still true for even for just this conversation to be like oh yeah back in this episode and this character dynamic and this 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 <laughs> right i mean you know i spoke a little bit about how the, the the memory stuff isn't in the the foreground in this episode and it that's kind of true we're, we're actually kind of about to get to the part where that starts to kick in a bit 
because uh, we we have a uh, conversation between Dorothy and Roger and Laura and Oliver. Uh, it's you. <laughs> You're a talented musician and you have a beautiful girlfriend. You're bound to be successful someday soon. You're a smooth talker. Now you two make a great couple. Hmm? Oliver uh, moves the, the sugar in the way so that, that Laura can pass it, right? He, he doesn't pass it for her. He moves it so that she can pass it. And that's such a small sort of thing that to, to sort of explicate not only their relationship, but who Oliver is, right? There's a lot of people who would just default pass it for Laura. Um, but that kind of thing, that kind of small character uh, uh, establishing is the sort of thing that, that I was previously uh, uh, complimenting the big O for. I wanted to ask you, um, there, this moment of the episode I think is really interesting where um, Oliver tells Roger that there are certain people who uh, every, you know, this time of year they gather into this particular building and, and they sing these songs and, you know, we, they, they, they seem to know why and they, we don't really know why, but that this picture that you've got, it, that they would might know something about it. Um, I was curious when it comes to your relationship to, you know, you don't have to share too, too much here, but when it comes to your relationship to Christmas um, and in the imagery of Christmas used in, in pop media, for me, you know, I, I grew up in a Muslim household, so it means something a little bit different. It feels a little bit different to me. Um, but in, in this sort of post-apocalyptic sort of setting where like the, the echoes of like, you know, tradition are, are still living on. Do you feel like this is like, does this like work for you in a sincere way? Or do you feel like this adds to like the verisimilitude of, of the despair of the setting? How, how does this land for you? It, it kind of lines up for both really. So uh, I'll fast forward a little bit. So probably my first or second time watching Big O when it gets to the line where Alex Rosewater asks the general, it's like, do you know the real meaning behind Heaven's Day? Mm. And of course, the, the general doesn't know because that all of that memory and all that knowledge has been uh, quickly and steadily completely buried from anyone who's not in power. And the only person who is in power is Alex. But he turns to the colonel, uh, the general, and tells him it's the day God's son was born. I was like, oh, look, the message of Christmas was made clear in this Japanese anime. <laughs> but of course... The more I started thinking about it, it's like, oh, no, that is not what they were saying. Because <laughs> Alex was talking about himself. Right. He, he is God's son. And so um, that and also coming back to the part where they're outside the church, um, it's, I feel like it's both. It, it works for the apocalyptic nature that uh, depending on your point of view and your background, you know, the greatest story ever told. Right is now unknown like the the story of um you know the the christian savior right is just gone like and all it would take is um everyone losing their memory and then that is just nipped and it's done forever right and that's that can be really disappointing and very depressing and just you know crushing for this an episode based on in this season of the year that you know where everything else is like oh you know i might be sad because you know my mom died in this hallmark story or because you know my college sweetheart moved away but now she's back and we gotta make it work right you know th th there's still the hope of 
you know, even the, the, the real Christmas or the, you know, the Hallmark Christmas that's going to bring everyone together. But in Paradigm, there's nothing. Right. You know, that is just gone. And in its place is only Heaven's Day, which is about a horrible corporation. You know, people talk about how, you know, Christmas has been, uh, you know, commercialized to death. And this may not may not have been the, the intent, but it also does speak to that. It's like now, after this apocalypse, Christmas is only the thing that doesn't matter. Right. Of course, on the flip side of that, you also have, there is a glimmer of hope that even without, you know, the Bible or with any kind of uh, apocryphal things or any kind of Rankin-Bass specials, or any, any postcards or uh, family traditions that even without knowing anything, because uh, I think Oliver says that, you know, the old people go out to the church and they, they, they read, they sing the songs from the book, right. but even they don't know what they're singing about. Nobody does, but they feel, they feel a need to do it anyway. And so, uh, so that in, instills within, uh, depending on the audience member, that can instill a certain sense of hope. Right. That even though you know Alex Rosewater has proclaimed himself the Son of God and has made you know the Christmas celebration all about paradigm, that, that even without knowledge, people will still gravitate towards the center of the true meaning. Nevertheless, so to answer your question, yes and no. <laughs> no, I love that answer. I love it. It's thir- it thoroughly covers everything I wanted to discuss about this this idea, and I completely agree with you. I, I feel like it elegantly communicates uh, a despondency, but also that the the hope about the 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 real shit, the shit you love about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, one of Roger's lines is when he's walking away from the church. Is like, you know, sometimes you know memories make us remember inconsequential things. It's a, you know when, when he's talking about Christmas and it's just like so there, there's your downer but then the fact that people are still remembering it is your upper at the exact same time. It's right. No, it, it's exactly right, and it, it 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 continues to demonstrate how Roger regards these things, and it, and it kind of it, it it makes sense, right? Because while Roger is is comfortable and you know he has a, a a nice relationship with with Norman, but a professional one, and his relationship with Dastin is kind of on the rocks, like it's it's you know, it's stressed is the way I would put it. Like he, he doesn't necessarily have the human connection to celebrate in the way. And this was obviously what you were saying earlier when, when it comes to Oliver and Laura. And we, we see that expressed explicitly, not to back us up to the table scene again, but I wanted to cover something that I had forgotten. Uh, Roger is like, he's smoozing, right? And, and Laura kind of calls him out on it in a, in a pretty subtle, like, I again, I missed it. When, when she is providing the, the tea, she calls him a smooth talker and she kind of slams it down. And, and I appreciated how this, this sort of inauthenticity is called out. And he's clearly like the next thing that they do is they, they put him on the defensive by having uh, Oliver, you know, like, hey, you guys look like a cute couple. And it's because they do. Roger and Dorothy are have like the most excellent couple pairing aesthetic of all time, I would say. <laughs> um but uh, Roger, he gets defensive in the the main character way, and and again in the way that that Roger is is oblivious without meaning to, he is he is kind of offensive about the whole thing, right? He 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 denies it in a way that is definitely not like respectful of of Dorothy's emotions that he pretends 
does and doesn't exist depending on the moment in a way that i right <laughs> well in a way that i do think is is honest like it, it feels like a a legitimate character choice rather than like writing inconsistency you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but um we you know when we talk about that moment that you invoked uh you know where this is jumping ahead to the ending a little bit but i i wanted to to uh, examine that idea of alex rosewater well you know a- after everything is as finished up and you know clearly he's safe uh you know he says to his his subordinate you know that thing that you were talking about which is like you know the true meaning of this day which is this is the day that the the son of god was born and and how that lands uh, as as a as, as a kid who's you know up at midnight <laughs> watching uh, the, the Big O on Adult Swim. There's something about that atmosphere and the way that that this person is invoking those sorts of big ideas in a you know I, I don't want to belittle it, but in a cartoon show in in America that context is stranger, right? That's not as common a thing, um, right? Yeah, and so the 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 moment hits even harder and so it's easy for me to understand like oh i think the first time i watched this i i would have thought the same thing that you did andy which was like oh i mean he's talking about the jesus you know and and that's what and you know to to have it land this time around where he is he's you know the self-aggrandizing goes so far right and Mm-hmm. There's a and you know to invoke season two again a little bit. It, it feels like I understand why, uh, but the the way that it lands in this episode is is particular to this episode, and and it you know it that's part of what makes these you know to to again bring up that thing I was talking about earlier the the way that each individual episode stands on its own and how that moment from Rosewater obviously ripples outward but stands effectively on its own is again. The Big O is a good show. Right. <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah. The Big O is good. Um, uh, speaking further on the whole Alex Rosewater part, I really also really appreciate the composition of that scene as well. Right. So uh, some of the characters are comically wide and comically tall to begin with in Big O. But in this scene, you know, you have the... And maybe the camera is slung down a little bit low too, but you have the general... And, you know, Alex looks like he's three heads taller than the general. And he's only turned like three quarters towards the general. And his chin is poked up and his eyes are looking down in a really just disparaging, supercilious look. And there's that pregnant pause where he just stares at the general. And then he says, and then in a low kind of matter of fact kind of, not even really regal. He, of course, associates himself in regality, but just a matter-of-fact declaration of it's the day God's son was born and turns and walks away. It's, no, you're right. The way that, in particular, the, you know, to highlight the way he's looking down at the general, um, and it's it's almost like the, the it's almost like jealousy, almost. Like, can someone be jealous of, of the Jesus? Like, that's almost what it kind of feels like to me, where it, he's like, you know, even now, <laughs> my, again, if I was speaking from, like, a, a, a more Christian perspective, like, the, the idea that he hasn't, like, fully superseded the original meaning, it seems to bother him <laughs> a little bit in this moment. Um, and I and I'm not even saying that's 100% what's going on, but I think highlighting how well they 
are characterizing him with the visuals and and the way that he fills up this frame is is a good highlight. Now, and also note that he's you know, he's dressed in white. He's got uh, you know a red undershirt. You see in the next episode when he's talking to uh, Roger Smith on top of his platform, where Roger's at the bottom, where they're uh, discussing um, giving Schwarzwald his severance pay. You right. can see. Uh, behind him is glowing lights, and then the eye beams that make up the dome, the way the shot is framed, are two just, you know, shining crosses behind him. Oh, so yeah. it's it you can miss that pretty easily. I did because I just expected them to be part of the art of the orchestra um, architecture around him. But then, no, nah, yeah, there's a uh, when season one kind of starts concluding, it's it's more. Uh, it's less, you know, Alex Rosewater is just the king of paradigm to where he is, you know, the king of the earth. Right. He is the Lord and savior, Alex Rosewater. No, I, I think, I think that's right. I think there is a, a purposeful sort of characterization that's happening in his, in the visual storytelling mm-hmm. there. And then also to keep, I guess, I guess we're, we're speaking a little bit. Uh, early on this but to also keep that power to himself and to not let anyone question him on it you'll also notice and uh, you may remember that Dostin talks about a, a book of revelation that you know alex kind of threw by the wayside right something that you know dan Dostin had never heard of he's like i have no idea that's what right. that is that's right and i don't know if this was on purpose or not i want to think it i want to think it is but i know it's not but uh, Dan Dawson also calls it Revelations, which is incorrect. It's, it's only one revelation for that whole book. Oh, okay. Uh, and so it's like, so not only did he not even know that that book of the Bible, or even the whole Bible exists, he also doesn't know its real name. Right. And the only person, the only person who knows about it, and the only person who would know beyond that and refuse to share anything else uh, was Alex. And so he's 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 just keeping that all into himself so that he can have the power. I really like that idea. I, I, I agree with you that probably it wasn't intentional, but like that sort of um, fallout, the series does a lot of fun stuff with that sort of idea of like how, how we put piece things together from, you know, what we have left. Right. And Alex Rosewater having access to, you know, maybe more stuff than other people do. He has more insight and wouldn't make the same errors that someone like Dastin, who's, I don't know, some book. I've never heard it, you know, like. Right. You know how love just happens. You've felt that, haven't you? Oh, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. It's all right. Let's see now. I bet the reason Oliver loves me is because I'm really easy to fool. Sometimes Oliver has to tell a lot of lies. And you don't mind? The only reason he lies is so he can keep playing the sax. He lives his life the way he wants to. That's really the reason why Oliver and I get along. It's best for the both of us. I wanted to talk about the conversation between um, Laura and Dorothy because to me it's kind of the like highlight of the episode. There is obviously a giant robot battle and it owns, but this to me is the the like real meat. I really love the R Dorothy uh, android question that, that the big O deals with and how it deals with it is very artful in my opinion. Yes. Um. So Dorothy comes to Laura's home and uh, in this moment it, it comes out the what kind of limitations that Dorothy has as an android 
Um, and it seems to it seems to make something clear to Laura about what Dorothy is doing there. Um, and I and I think this whole conversation is is fascinating because this is also where the the topic of Oliver and how he deals with Laura is 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 really like hashed out. And it's done in a way that is, and we talked about this a little bit already, is like atypical for this kind of story, right? Like you would expect this moment for Laura to be listing out all the things that the the, the show has already kind of demonstrated to us about Oliver, right? Which is like, you know, he is he is kind and he is he thinks of others and he's a hard worker and he is dedicated to his craft and and all that stuff in order to to demonstrate to Dorothy like ah yes we as humans we the, what we love about one another are are our positive aspects uh, but what instead Laura chooses to do is she chooses to talk about uh, Oliver in a way that that feels very harsh <laughs> it feels kind of negative um in that she seems to frame him as someone who appreciates how easy it is to quote unquote manipulate Laura. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to get your take on this. How do you, how do you, how do you read the scene? What do you, what do you think Laura is trying to communicate about Oliver to Dorothy? That is, that is a pretty good question because a lot of what she kind of says feels uh, non sequitur to me, honestly. Because uh, she she starts off with saying, you know, so Dorothy asks Laura, why does Oliver love you? And the reason why she asks that I'd like to talk about later. Okay. But uh, her response is, you know, hmm, I think Oliver loves me because I'm easy to fool. And, oh, man, when I say it, when it's not uh, Laura saying it, that does sound like really just like, snidely right you know <laughs> right well then but she goes on to explain like you know it was like but he he lies to, well cause, so no that does sound pretty snidely because i was about to bring up the earlier scene where he's like you know i'm going to pretend to eat this ham that i spent all of my money on but i'm secretly going to give it all to laura and so this is where I'm trying to get into like where it feels like a non sequitur to me. Cause it's like, why would he love someone because they're easy to fool? It seems like it would be more accurate to say, uh, maybe Oliver loves Laura because it's easier for him to express love to her. Like it's, it's it's very very easy for him to do a pretty big sacrifice right. to just give her all of his food, whereas someone who could see would not either need that sympathy, I guess if you want to use that word, and also would be rejecting to it. So like if if someone so if Laura if Laura could see and it's like oh well, here uh, I'm not that hungry you can have all of my food there would be pushback from that right from because someone trying to be fair and equal. And so for Oliver, I guess in, in that regard, it would be easier for him to be as just overflowingly kind as possible to someone if only if because they're easier to kind of fool in that regard. Yeah, I think, you know, um, I, I think you've you've touched on the, the, the thing that they're trying to communicate, because for me. When I watched through this, this was something that I, I, I got really attached to. 
um, I, I have a tendency, if you listen through that episode, I have a tendency to sort of impose interiority onto characters. And, and for me, this resonated for me, uh, you know, because when it comes to long-term relationships, especially there, there is a, a, a kind of unspoken difficult thing to, to, to discuss, which is a, the sort of mundanity of living with each other and, and just like the the normal day-to-day shit that you've got to do to, to live and, and exist and and what i think she's speaking to here and the reason why she's bringing it up to uh dorothy in particular this is why i i highlighted the the limitations that dorothy feels like she can't taste the tea right that's something that they talk about and i and i feel mm-hmm. like to me that 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 screams to me as almost like a um like a yardstick, like it is supposed to be telling you something about what's going on in the scene here. And I think what, what Laura is trying to explain to Dorothy is, is the stuff that's not obvious, right? Like it's obvious why, why you would love someone who's kind to you. And it's obvious why you would love someone who takes care of you or something like that. Um, but I think what Laura is trying to explain to Dorothy are the not obvious reasons. And, and I think she's trying to explain it in a way that is, honest that in a way that feels so off base for a regular person i think she's trying to speak to dorothy on her level and and i think that the writing is like i i would say that it's a mixed success i i I think that it kind of works but i do think that it's difficult to parse because of just how so far outside of the normal like I don't want to say dynamic, but like this is just so far beyond what you would expect someone to say to this question. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and then and then to follow it up with, oh, he also lies to me so that he can go play the saxophone. Right, exactly. <laughs> so he likes the saxophone more than you. <laughs> well, see this it, this kind of does go into what I think is an expression of of something that she understands about him, right? Which is that like he he the the reason he lies the reason he he will sacrifice himself entirely for me is because he will never force me to or or he will never choose between his his love of sexophoning and me because if it came to that choice he would just choose me is the thing i think that that she's trying to sort of and like maybe not the other side of this the the flip side which i think we talked about previously is that this could just be the the show trying to uh, paint us a fuller picture of the dude that that Oliver is like while he is effortlessly kind and he shows us we are shown these things uh, we are now being told this other side of it and like I think what we're trying to establish essentially to TLDR what I've been saying is that I think Laura is trying to give Dorothy a fuller picture. And just so as a computer brain, it makes more sense to her. I, I think that's what's mm. going on here. Um, but I think it's the fact that it exists in this giant robot punch show is spectacular. <laughs> yes, precisely. <laughs> like, you know, I, and I only say that because we're we're about to get to that within the the, the length of the show. And, and I, I wanted to use this opportunity to talk about anything you wanted to highlight about either the, the big O as a machine or its opponent in this case, which is like a, a Christmas tree Violante sort of situation. Uh, uh, was there anything that you about this 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 battle or or either of those things you wanted to to shout out into the the podcast sphere? 
Well, about the battle, I do like that this this isn't our first organic enemy, but it is one without any intel. Well, you could argue it has some amount of intelligence because it has a purpose and it is attacking the big O, but it's not like the Chimera from episode eight. Right. Uh, and then to also have Big O just completely open all of its, uh, you know, hidden guns and all of its armory and arsenal and to still just not win. And in fact, if the plant had existed for just 10 seconds more, would Roger have died even? Right. And so there, there's not really much of a tension there, but it's just far as a, a well-composed fight, and there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of destruction, you know, the big O falls over at one time, which is where, you know, Norman leaps over it in his sidecar motorcycle, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, and a lot of really far off shots, good scale with all the buildings around it. And then, of course, our favorite thing, there is a shot of, um, was it, a Robots Through Windows right. in that fight scene, which is... <sighs> Oh yeah, that's that's that really is. That's not even like the cherry on top. That's like that's like the Ferrero Rocher on there, top. It's the good that's, shit. That's what we're That's for. it. Right, exactly. It's the um uh, uh I don't um you'll have to forgive me if I expose myself here cuz I don't really drink, but it's it's whatever shot is going into the screwdriver. It's it's the final piece, you know. <laughs> like Right, right. Um uh but the the um to to follow up on something you brought up, uh the big O when it shows up in a battle, you know, obviously there's there's a little bit of tension of just like how how exactly is the big O going to succeed here? But we also have learned, and this is just part of the part of the structure of this kind of show, like when the big O shows up, that that's the fight. <laughs> like the, the yep. big O is here to win now. <laughs> um, and so for for this to to not go in that way, for for nothing the big O does to be effective is is very different you know and and i think what you're pointing out the the way that it, it could have gone very very differently maybe even kind of lost this is the first time i think he's driven to these kind of ends and i and i imagine i wonder how much of it was meant to be um uh foreshadowing for the battle against the big duo um which obviously because of the the advantages of a of, you know a flying machine that that's the main thing they sort of emphasize is you know how much of a disadvantage the big o is in that in that particular battle because of missing ammo from the the mummy battle and all that stuff oh. um it's it's really fun to see the big o in this in this sort of way um and because we do get to see also just demonstrated all the stuff that he can do here um shout outs by the way thank you for reminding me about norman and his sidecar uh yes norman is the true the mash motorcycle yeah the mash motorcycle and, and norman is the true mvp of this episode <laughs> uh, i love how we see him with the um the tailor at the end uh, i love this like um additional character of the tailor lady <laughs> like, um uh uh but uh this bit where uh dorothy brings uh laura to oliver so that we can have our our holiday ending um there's a fun shot the big o is so good at this stuff with dorothy in particular so laura and and oliver are about to smooch they're about to have a big uh big uh, couple smooch and uh right before it connects it cuts back to dorothy right and it's dorothy doing like 
you know, for lack of a better term, like Dorothy face, right? <laughs> Where right, yeah. <laughs> like obviously she's reacting. Like we as an as an audience understand that she's taking this in, and it's like the wheels are turning in her head, um, which is kind of what I refer to as Dorothy face. Um, and, and this is the moment where, uh, we have the exchange of gifts here, uh, and the whole sort of like sitcom scenario is, is uplifted. Um, but for the, the thing I, I, I'm curious about, do you think in the end, okay, I'm, I'm going to go first here just so we can be, we could be brave together. I am pro, uh, uh, Roger and Dorothy as, as a romantic couple. I, I, I'm, I think that generally that is the, 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 you know, uh, uh, structure the the sorts of things that the story is trying to get across, and I, and I think it does it in a pretty good way. As far as this kind of story can be done, and you know, I think it's done well. So, you know, this all works for me. This is all very cute. Th- does this does this work for you? Is this something you you appreciate at the end of this episode? Oh, absolutely. Like I'm I'm not only am I the world's largest you know big O stan, I'm also a Dorothy stan. And so, uh, this, this might be, you know, throwing my shot a little too hard, but you know, I, I, I'm romantic towards Dorothy myself. Uh, she's my anime wife. That's fair. But she's the best, but, (laughs) but so, but in that context to see, you know, uh, to see them as a romantic pairing of Roger and Dorothy, I definitely agree that that is the way the show is trying to, to push those characters. It doesn't necessarily get to any real reveal uh throughout the entire first season but the the emphasis is there you know i kind of feel like there's no other reason why you know dorothy would come to laura in the first place and ask her the question i agree why does oliver love you no i completely agree and for her to be so you know laser focused on oh we're supposed to give presents to the people we love right and then and she you know, she she's doing that at the beginning of the episode. Right. You know, the the episode opens with her get, uh, buying Roger a tie before she even you know asks all of these questions uh, and learns about the, more about the human condition. So, but so yes, I agree that that's what the show is trying to push us towards, and it is adorable. And two, if you notice, which I thought was a really nice touch, in the very next episode, uh, um, the enemy as another big. At the end of the episode, when Dorothy is on that ledge, uh, looking at the, the big duo, and she turns towards the Paradigm Main Dome, you'll note that she's wearing the coat that Roger got her the last episode. No way! That's awesome. I didn't notice that. Okay. It's, so it's very subtle. You can tell that her um, her uh, cuffs, her white cufflinks, aren't animated. They aren't drawn in, and the length of her skirt is longer. And so it's like, that's the coat that she got for Christmas or for Heaven's Day last episode. Oh, that rules. Okay, I definitely have to check that out. <laughs> that's awesome. No, because there's little stuff like that. And I completely agree with what you're saying that, that you know, even going back an episode or two, um, I, I can't remember the Chimera episode uh, specifically, but um, the part of her fixation in that episode is the, the painting of, of the, the dead uh, or the deceased wife. Um, and, and she's really, really stuck on that painting to the point where she asks to model for for Roger. And that, to me, is a real, like, Dorothy and how she expresses herself is on the spectrum of, like, like you know, truly dismissive all the way on to the other end of, like, 
like juvenile naivete, you know? Do you think that's fair to say? Yes. Um, yeah. And and the fact that it that from episode to episode, like she can really skew wildly from that makes her delightful. Like it, it really is like from from beat to beat. And like you really like there's you can switch from moment to moment from like, oh, she's invincible android girl. She is my very strong girlfriend. I love her. To like, no, please protect her. Please don't let any harm come to her. <laughs> she is fragile. Yeah. <laughs> like the the whole episode of Missing Cat is the latter of what you're talking about. Like when uh, uh after um I guess spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen episode eight yet, but when the chimera with Piero's soul in it walks into the compound and then the compound falls on him and crushes and burns him to death. And, uh, you know, uh, Dorothy's in Bigo's hand and Bigo lifts her up. And it's just a square, flat shot on Dorothy's face as it rains. And it's just, it holds for like, what, five or six seconds yep. just right on her face as she just stares into out at the uh, compound as, you know, Peril Bur- uh, excuse me, as Peril burns to death. It's- and uh, equally poetic that it's raining, which, you know, uh, uh symb- could symbolize tears but dorothy can't cry right so not to mention i can't i i, I don't remember the specifics of, isn't that how she found Piro in the rain in an alleyway like yes yeah yeah that's that's God, man the big o is good and then of course that scene continues on i don't think uh like the rain sound effect continues but it just fades to black and it's her in that alleyway again right and she's walking down, and then she sees, and I think they really even they reuse footage to make that scene as you know as similar as possible visually. Right. And then she's walking past it, and then she just keeps going because it's like there is no peril there now. Right. It's oh man, it's that that sort of thing, and the and the way that they are able to uh, put that sort of humanity into Dorothy while also dealing with these questions of like how does she actually navigate this stuff. Like and and also there is a cool robot who punches the shit out of something every episode. Like it really, it's got everything you'd want in in a mecha show, in my opinion. Like it was one of the of the modern stuff that we've covered. This is definitely one of the ones that I keep finding new things to talk positively about. Oh yeah, like, even in my consideration, where I've seen it ten times, I'll be watching it for the eleventh time next year, starting April second. Um, every year, I find something new to enjoy about it. Like, I think just a couple of years ago when I was talking about that scene where, you know, uh, Dorothy is talking to all, uh, to Laura and you know, why she asks, why, why would she ask a blind person, you know, why does someone normal like someone who's disabled like you? You know, I saw that mirroring just like, well, how could Roger love me if I'm an android? I'm disabled like you. And that took me multiple watches to kind of see uh, what could have pressured, uh, you know, Dorothy's questioning in that specific regard for that specific person. And then like the whole, um, uh, oh, this is a season two quote when Roger's like, you know, Alex, I think it's time for you to feel the people's wrath. It's like, I would not have gotten that, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, every, every watch, every watch through, because the narrative and the characters and even just the set design is so rich, there's always something to bring out of it. And even just as, as the watcher, changes and develops over time you know with with like this episode specifically how roger is not just this clean cut perfect archetype you know you like we had asked earlier now how do you how do you feel about roger saying to oliver you know you know don't take shortcuts and you know pick yourself up by your bootstraps you know 
depending on just your age and your experiences and what you've seen in the world, you will come to that multiple different ways. Right. 100%. It's it's just that that's just good storytelling, baby. That's that's, <laughs> that's it. Sometimes it's that simple. Just good storytelling. Yeah, just do it good sometimes. <laughs> um, you know this. While we're talking about visuals, uh, this episode ends on a, a killer sort of choice, which is after Dorothy and Roger exchanged gifts and and everything's kind of worked out. Oliver, who has a great sense of timing, just starts playing. Uh, and, you know, Dorothy is a yes-ander, obviously, and so when she hears some music, she's got to dance. And and in particular, what I love about the way she chooses to to dance is how it's it's clearly meant to invoke like a like a like a, a toy ballerina, like a mechanical ballerina or something like that. Like it's it's clearly meant to look like a, a plastic figure, like spinning in a stationary way. Um, and it. Obviously, with with Dorothy, it kind of looks it looks lovely, right? Because it's Dorothy, and and you can see what they're trying to invoke, um, and and this moment is when Laura says to Oliver, like, "Thank you for this Christmas present. This is wonderful." And you can see how it it touches Dorothy. Like, there's something here that she does not make Dorothy face. She clearly has an emotion here, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and I think this is the like moment like if if you know obviously roger got dorothy like a a, you know a a gucci coat and it looks nice you know (laughs) um uh, but i think this moment is the gift that dorothy gets in this episode um and it's and it's awesome that like you know we we talked about coca-cola santa claus and and how he has hyper fixated on this thing um, but he really ends up giving the citizens of paradigm like the an amazing gift Right. Which which is this like which is to to say that they they uh, separate the things that they love about Heaven's Day from paradigm. And then that's almost like, again, that's not really I don't think what the intention of the text is necessarily to to throw it in Alex Rosewater's face is that directly. Um, But it it feels like the way that, you know, and I also wanted to make a joke about like, oh, the, the Christmas tree wasn't supposed to live that long outside of its normal context, just like regular Christmas trees. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, you know, the, the way that, that the, uh, the Christmas tree uh, creates this new horizon for, for the, the citizens here and how it connects Roger and Dorothy and also Norman and this Taylor girl <laughs> who's, who's just in these shots. Um, and, and uh, even Dastin who gets to look like a cool noir guy, uh, you know, sitting on on a on a on a route with a cigarette. Um, the the way that it cuts through all these characters, it it it's clear that we're supposed to understand how this moment is affecting everyone as the music plays and as everything sorts of wraps up wraps up nicely. Like the only person who didn't have a nice time this Heaven's Day was was Alex. It looks like um, right. Before this, this is kind of the end of Demon Seed, but I feel like before we we wrap up in a more uh, uh, formal way, I wanted to give you the opportunity. Was there was there something you wanted to chat about or a bit we skipped over? Well, I I was uh, after you talked about you know how I didn't think about this. This is what I'm talking about. I've seen the show ten times. I only just now thought about this. Uh, you were talking about how you know. Um, Dan gets to be the cool noir guy. He's smoking. He's sitting on the the the, uh, the route. But I think we need to we need to sit back and we need to realize that 
episode Damon Seeds episode eleven, right? right? Episode ten is Winter Night Phantom. Right. Right. Yeah. So you know, so Oliver and Laura are together. Roger and Dorothy are together. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Norman and the Taylor are together, and their shots are semi kind of close up. Just you know, they're both on screen and they're both together. But then you get Dustin. You know, he's not on the same level of the street right. as anyone else. You know, his his framing is he's excuse me, he's extra kind of far away and he's smoking, which he doesn't really do a lot well, in in the show. And for those who may not know, in Winter Night Phantom, and this is kind of getting the spoiler territory, uh in Winter Night Phantom is the episode where Dan uh has to murder his uh, supposed lover. So yep. yeah, it's you know you get all this jovial Christmas holiday spirit and love going around, and he's just kind of off to the edge. Also, it's snowing again, and it was snowing when he shot Civil War. Exactly. Rowan. I bet this is a really bad time for him. Yeah, there's <laughs> uh, that's such a good catch. Oh my goodness! Like especially the way that it's shot to and uh, with him his face not in focus where we can't see. In anime, that oh yeah, it's, it's complete in shadow. Yeah, in anime, that's that's a tell. Usually, that's shorthand for you know that that we can't even convey the the sort of emotion that that this person is feeling. That's usually for bad emotions too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then for him, and then for him to be smoking too, which I think he's only done one other time. I think that was um, it was uh, bring back my ghost. I think he lights a cigarette oh. in that episode. And even to to uh, have it be that particular episode, which deals explicitly with with quote unquote ghosts, and like you know, the most simple explanation, the most Occam's razor, like you know, the smoke rising kind of looks like ghosty, you know, <laughs> it kind of looks like spiritual, yeah, yeah. and like that's <laughs> that sort of thing is is I you I completely missed that. What a good catch! Yeah, I missed it, and I've been watching this. It's been 13 years since I've seen this show for the first time, and I I just now put that together. That's so great. Oh, man. Th- this is... Man, Big O is cool. <laughs> Big O is a good show, as it turns out. As it turns out, it's pretty good. But this is why, Andy, this is why I wanted to call and, and have you discuss this episode with me, is because I, I feel like, and, you know, this is flashback is is set up for this particular purpose and you know I, i'm not gonna sit here and, and promise stuff down the line but i i do legitimately feel like we could probably do this for any individual episode of the big o that if oh absolutely if we sat down and and cracked it open like this and that's that's kind of the idea we we want to we want to make sure that that flashbacks is providing people especially people like you who have these strong sincere reads about these shows get the opportunity to get to talk about them Mm-hmm. So before we we wrap up formally, uh, was there anything else you wanted to touch on in Demon Seed or about the Big O? There there were a couple of things about uh, Demon Seed kind of left over. Uh, there was a lot of visual direction, and you and I had this conversation on on Twitter uh, months ago now. But something I'd like to bring up again for all the audience who will be listening uh, at the beginning of the episode. There's a lot of visual direction that uh, kind of shows a distinct separation between roger and dorothy uh like um it's after the elevator scene ever since you know he kind of uh i want to say disparages ever since he's kind of coarse against dorothy and her weight i'm forgetting about it like every scene after that 
And we're on the escalator. It's a really far away kind of fish lens shot that shows distance between them. And then you have the, the table is a very wide, long table. And uh, when they're walking away from the building before that, there's also a really long shot. And that's actually where they meet uh, Oliver for the first time. But then every other scene after that between Oliver and Laura is them very, very close together. And no matter really the, the meaning, like the character meanings behind that visual direction, that kind of comes back to what I was saying beforehand, is that, you know, you have uh, these two these two people who are both experiencing the, the human condition, but, you know, Roger has everything, you know, he has everything that Oliver wants, you know, money, uh, security, right. living in a nice place, having enough food, being able to, you know, uh, carve out an entire mountain of potatoes, whereas Oliver spent all of his money on one slice of meat. Right. But then the crux of the episode is Laura, at least, has everything that Dorothy wants. Right. And so we may, they, they have these two people kind of having the same, um, but it's like what I said earlier, one person has everything, but they're missing something really, really big. And, you know, Oliver and Laura, the other people may not have a whole bunch of anything, but they have at their core what really, really matters. And so that the whole kind of theme of this episode is uh, it's staunch contrasts in ability yet how similar uh, the human condition can be despite that because at the end of the day you know uh, depending on the, your personal reads of what you know you feel about with Roger and Dorothy right. it's uh, they still kind of get together at the end kind of like Laura and Oliver are, and that's really what matters. Everything else that kind of uh, defines them, defines their essence, and kind of drives their defining characteristics of memory or lack thereof doesn't really matter when the human condition is being with one another. Right. 100%. That's that's such a good point. I, I really like the, you know, uh, you'll have to forgive me because I definitely remember having the conversation on Twitter uh, but uh, when it comes to this year, everything is falling down a memory hole. And so you'll have to forgive uh, me. I don't blame you. Yeah, all right. It doesn't even feel like I went to a concert back in March. It feels like it was years oh ago. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's stuff like that. The, this, this year has been 18 years long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. In January, I went somewhere else. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Once. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, no, the, the thing that uh, we've talked about before and I want to highlight again that the Big O has really, really strong visual storytelling. All of its visuals yes. tend to be very intentional, whether that's um, at the bar meeting with Big Ear and everyone being out of focus or out of the shot to, to sort of communicate how this is supposed to be a meeting on the down low, or like you pointed out here, the distance between Roger and, and Dorothy emotionally in this moment is reflected in the literal physical distance between them. That's good shit. The big O is good. <laughs> yes. And then you also just get like really weird shots. Like in Beck Comes Back, there's a scene where I think uh, Roger is at uh, Mr. Wise's house for the second time. And the camera is just inside the grandfather clock. Oh, yeah. And the pendulum is moving in front of it. I'm like, okay, Katayama. I love it. But also like, 
what? Can you, can you chill for one second? <laughs> like, and then even in this episode too, when um when Roger's looking at his watch, he has the notification that's just blinking the word. Uh, there's a blinking red light and it says secret. And he gets to the car to uh, answer the radio. Norman speaking to him. The camera is just in the footwell of the Griffin. It's and it's just like this is. I love this type of just weirdly hidden, organic kind of camera angles. And that's another thing that just really makes the Big O feel so just dynamic and virtuoso and alive. Right. It's it, 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 it's the sort of thing that in the moment you might not appreciate right away, but in the absence of it, you would understand like what what they're doing here, what they're trying to accomplish, why they're making these choices. Like when you see something that's just like, a camera, B camera, to quote Red Letter Media, like that. That mm-hmm. very clearly it, it communicates to you, like, oh, I understand now why you would make all these choices because in the absence of all these choices, I'm feeling nothing, right? When mm-hmm. right. Obi Wan tells, uh, 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 gosh, I almost called her Anakin. Uh, when <laughs> Natalie Portman that Anakin killed all the kids, it's it's like, oh no, like it doesn't land in the same way that it might if you know the big O had done the star Wars prequels instead. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, that that's the, that's the sort of thing that I, I think that these kinds of conversations where you can hash it out and I can ask you direct, like Andy, what what's going on with this one? And you can say, well, Ignis, check out this shot. And I'll be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's part of why I, I especially wanted you back on for this one. Um, now that we're starting to get towards the end of this, were there any particular final thoughts that you wanted to leave people with for Demon Seed or the Big O? Or do you think we've kind of, I feel like, you know, again, I, I hate to preach to the choir to you to tell you how good the Big O is, but, um, <laughs> you know, I feel like when when it comes to PMC, this was PMC's, like, I want to say like his seminal sort of mecha thing, the thing that really, it's like his aesthetic in one show, I would say. Um, so he, when we finished up the big O for mecha nations, he gave it basically the highest score that he's given a show that we've done. I, I, I kind of fought against doing numeric scores for our show, but it, it makes it easier to talk about for people who are following along. So whatever. Um, uh, and, and, you know, for me, I, I was ready to, you know, to, to sort of confess something, I was ready to watch this and, and to kind of be like, oh, okay. I, I was ready to have the reaction that I'm having now with Gundam Wing, which is to say that, oh, I thought Gundam Wing was smart. It's just that I was 14 and didn't understand anything. <laughs> right. And, and what's great about the Big O is the opposite, which is to say that, oh, I thought the Big O was smart. And I was right. <laughs> like it was, I was correct to. <laughs> I arrive. didn't know how right I right, was. Exactly. Like I was correct to arrive at that conclusion, and and it was such a it was such a delight to to do that with the big O, and which is why I I had to invite you on again to talk about it. So thank you so much for coming on to to chat about uh, Demon Seed and the Big O and Mecha in general. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's always my pleasure to you know talk about big o and talk about big o with people i appreciate i know i I mean you go back through if you search in my twitter like handle and just type in big o it's just a couple it's like you know it's years worth of tweets just about that one topic so it's it's my favorite thing to talk about and i don't i don't want to sound pretentious to say it's my favorite thing to educate people about Mm. but i mean i wouldn't have made that website if i didn't want to get that 
out to as many people as possible. Not not to say to enjoy the thing I enjoy, but to bring them something that I enjoy so that they may enjoy it as well. screaming about shit on twitter <laughs> <laughs> i love all those twitter threads absolutely follow andy on twitter at uh, engine veer that's a uh, e-n-g-i-n-v-i-r is that correct i think that's right that is correct um engine veer and he will um, constantly entertain you with his thoughts about yatterman and dr Katz and uh uh uh, uh star trek um and red baron oh and red baron i forgot the red baron thread is so hype <laughs> the red baron i'm always excited when red baron's going on um, uh it, it red baron is a poor man's g gundam but it does have some heat to it it does yeah, that's that hype that's that super robot hype that's the thing that that people don't necessarily listen all right listen i'm i'm i like my real robots that's fine you can tell me how it's made and how it works and how the guns shoot that's fine i'm i'm okay with that but the real shit is super robot, and and that's and that's the way it is. I, I don't make the rules. That's just the way it is. <laughs> um, and then also going back to our initial kind of conversation, uh, Red Baron is all fisticuffs. He's a grappling, punching, kicking robot. That rules. 